Well, if you are just joining us this Sunday, our, your first Sunday here, we are going through a series called Orthodox, Foundational Truths to Treasure. Um, and I think it's critical um, for us to say that, to reemphasize that this is the foundational um, kind of bedrock truths of what we think would be, would be true about the Christian faith. And so if, if you're building a house and you, you lay the foundation, is the foundation the house? No, there's a lot more that, that you need for that. And so there's a lot more that we can say about what we're going through. We're just kind of laying the foundation. And so if you start having questions about what do we mean by this, please, I want to answer questions afterwards or whenever we can get coffee, things like that. Um, but if we start seeing there's a, a lot of the similar questions, we might end up doing like a Q&A um, all together. And so I think that might be helpful if, if, if we start seeing that as well. But I just want to say that's kind of what this is, foundational truths to treasure. Um, so what we did the first week, we began asking the question, how can we know anything? Uh, very philosophical. And we answered the scriptures. And then last week we, we asked, uh, but can we trust those scriptures? And we said, yes, because we can trust Jesus. And so this week we want to ask, but what can those scriptures really say about God? What can you actually say about God? Um, do these scriptures capture God or do they put God in a box? Did you know that a boa constrictor, should, we should have a, a nice scary picture of a boa constrictor up there, uh, can grow to an average of 13 feet long. 13 feet long, whoo, is 13 feet too long, right? <laughs> the largest boa constrictor in the world, uh, it was 18 feet, um, but which is just, I don't know. Okay, that's just wild. <laughs> but what is actually even more wild, I think, is that this is, these are, the average is 13 feet in the wild. But if you decide, and some of you guys are crazy enough to have a boa constrictor as a pet, and some of you are like that, I don't, I don't get you, I don't think it's weird, I just, it's, it is what it is, <laughs> if you have a boa constrictor as a pet. But if you decide to have a boa constrictor as a pet, the largest they get on average is around seven feet. Isn't that interesting? That, that instead of being 13 feet, they are seven feet. And so why, why is there this gap of six feet when they are now held in captivity? It's because these snakes grow in proportion to the setting or the box that they're in. These snakes don't have limitations in the wild, impeding their growth. They, but when they become a household pet, their growth is stunted. Likewise, how have we boxed our experience of God in? What are ways that we box our experience of God in and say, this is all I'll accept you as. I have figured God out. <laughs> I've got it. I've got the picture of what God is like. I know who he's like. I have tamed God. My God never surprises me. My God is predictable. Well, today I want to blow up <laughs> your box of God. Uh, I think that will be a good thing because I want us to be able to walk away in wonder at the majestic, awesome God we have in the scriptures. And so the way we're going to look at it today is we're going to see God, the incomprehensible, the unfathomable, and the knowable. Incomprehensible, the unfathomable, and the knowable. So God is incomprehensible. 
Um, have you noticed in like the last 10 years, maybe, or so, that there is a trend uh, amongst Christians that as we start talking about God, there, people are using phrases like, Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my pal. <laughs> he's a good chum. I mean, he's cool. Like, he, he's my sidekick. And even just saying those things, like, it just makes us all cringe, right? Can we all just go, ugh, everyone do it. Uh, <laughs> right? There's, there's something about that that just doesn't feel right. And, and it's not that Jesus isn't friendly. He is. God is kind, and he wants to be there for you like a friend. Uh, but if Jesus is just your buddy, then I think we've failed as a church. <laughs> Contrast that way of talking about God to how the Bible speaks about God. The psalmist says in Psalm 145, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Unsearchable. Isaiah 55 says, God is speaking and he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Ooh. <laughs> God's just mic dropping on us right there, like, okay, you'd have to rub it in. <laughs> it's so much higher. My thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. They are otherworldly. They are unsearchable. This doctrine that we're talking about today is called divine incomprehensibility. Everyone say divine incomprehensibility. And what this means is that when we see God in this little box, and I think we have an image up here of putting God in a box, um, we think, okay, that's our God. We see, we see God perfectly clearly in our box, in this little box. But what we realize is that we're like a little ant trying to understand a human being. And we say, I've understood God perfectly, and you're on God's toe. And you're like, I, I understand God perfectly. He's a toe. And we're like, well, I don't even know if we get the toe of God yet. I don't know if we've understood the toe of God yet. We don't understand even that. And so divine incomprehensibility means God is mysterious. God is, is other. And there's, there's a lot that we can know about God, but we are concerned with nothing but mystery about what we can't know. There's a lot we do know about God, but we want to know what we can't know. And so there's a saying in our modern world, because I think divine incomprehensibility sounds a little bit over our heads. There's a saying in our modern world that I think captures the exact same thing. It's, I can't even. You've heard this before? You've probably heard people say this. You've probably said it. There's probably something about you that hates when people say it. It's, it's an emotional expression responding to an event or, or, or someone when what they say or do. It's, it's this abrupt ending that implies there is something too amazing, too frustrating, too surprising, too exciting to handle, and so we are left speechless. I can't even something. <laughs> we can't finish it. And so if you're still confused by this saying, uh, here I think some of these images will help. I, the first one here, on a scale from one to even, I can't. I hope that explains it better. Or, or there's, a, there's another one here that says, what I can't, and then even's over here. You see this? Yeah? I feel like that, that should explain it for us. 
I think what happens is when you see something so cute like a hamster nibbling on an on a, on a, on a ear of corn, you're like, I can't even. It's just so cute, right? Like there is something overwhelming about it. Or when someone says something so dumb, I think this response is, is needed, right? Like, oh, I can't even. <laughs> like there is this response that needs to come out. Now, when someone tells you something so wonderful, you can't even explain how it makes you feel. It's just too wonderful. It's incomprehensible. John Green, the author of The Fault in Our Stars, wrote, I will endeavor to regain my ability to even, right? Th this is what we should all do. It's when you find yourself for a complete lack of words because words don't do justice to how you feel. It's incomprehensible. And when Job says... In chapter 26, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job might as well be saying, I can't even. I can't even explain him to you. Like, God's ways are so high above ours. Like, how do I even begin to speak about God? Like, I feel insecure being the one to tell you about God's incomprehensibility. How do I share this with you? How do we even talk about God's incomprehensibility? Joe says, we, we can only hear even the small whisper of him because when he comes and he thunders, no one can understand him. It's too awesome for us to understand. The reformers talked about it this way, that, that, that when God would come talk to us, he would come talk to us in baby talk. So if, I were to, if God were to come and say, let me tell you about my divine incomprehensibility, like, we, we wouldn't get it. And so it's, it's as if I get down, I, I'm coming up with a three-month-old, and I get down on my hands and knees, and I play peekaboo. I don't try to under, like, explain divine incomprehensibility to a three-month-old. You play peekaboo. That's what God is doing with us when he communicates to us. He's played peekaboo. We get some of what he's saying, but it's just a little fraction. It's incomprehensible. God is an unknown depth. He's ineffable in eternity. And on one hand, I think this doctrine is just beautiful. It, it helps us regain wonder about God. And I think we all need to regain that wonder about God. But I think this doctrine left alone by itself, as I found out this week in my studies, actually has a really dark side to it. That if you are just left with God's incomprehensibility and saying he is just unexplainable, you can't say anything about him, what that actually ends up leading to is agnosticism. Agnosticism is, is someone who's, who doesn't say they don't believe in God, but they would say you can't know if there is a God. You just can't know. And so I was kind of surprised when I was reading this that this is actually, if someone, you know, some agnostics who were taking God more seriously than I think some Christians do, and saying he is, has such a high view of divine incomprehensibility that they would say, you can't know anything about God. Like the, the, anyone attempting to, to personalize God into something we can understand has just insulted the very idea of God. The minute you say something about God, you have boxed him in. So why would you even try to do that? You are making God into your own image. And so what they would say is all that we really can say is I can't even. That's all we can say. But as we said before, we have the skeleton key, right? We have the key that unlocks the secrets of the universe. 
that lets us know something about God, that tells us something about God and God himself. God has revealed himself in nature. We can see something about God, but he's revealed himself more fully and clearly in the scriptures. That gives us an idea of going, now I know something about God. And so what what we really mean when we talk about this topic of divine incomprehensibility is that also that God is unfathomable. That, 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 that God, theologically speaking, to, to, to say God is incomprehensible is not to say that God is utterly unknowable. It's to say that none of us can comprehend God exhaustively. We don't know, we don't know all of it, but we, don't, we, we know a mere fraction of it. We, we barely know the toenail, right? That's how much we know about God. Take example, we talked about earlier in the, our service here, Exodus 3. Moses comes to the burning bush, uh, and, and that alone is communicating something to us that God shows up as a, a fire in a bush, that God is communicating something because he chose to be a fire there. Um, he could have come as anything, but he chose a fire. And Moses is like, as we talked about, you know, well, what's your name? How do I, what do I say to people who sent me? And in verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And so what is God's name? And God answers with something almost untranslatable. God says, what's your name? I am, I am, I am who I am. And you're going, I want to know what Moses' response was to (laughs) <laughs> say it again? Like, uh, what, does he, what does he mean by that? Which, what he's trying to say, he's basically saying is, I am being itself. I am existence. Uh, who is God? God is being. Meaning God is just, just is. Everything exists and moves and depends on God. And God depends on nothing. That's my name, Moses. Like, which is also as if God is saying, I am, I was, and I always will be. I'm always going to exist. And I think this is something that is just going to blow your mind. I think that God has no beginning, right? Now, this, if this doesn't get you to say, I can't even, I don't know what will, this should hurt your brain. Every child that I've ever talked to that start asking some of these questions, they say like, well, who, where did you come from? Who's your dad? Who, it goes all the way up to finally it's like, well, who made God? Right? That question always comes up. Well, well who made God? And we would say, he was not made. He just always was. And then we just go, <laughs> it, it hurts, right? It hurts to think about that. How does God just exist? Who made God? And Exodus 3 says God has no beginning. God just always was. Can you imagine that? I mean, most of our stories live happily ever after, and we're like, okay, yeah, I, I, I can somewhat imagine some type of a, a longer time in eternity. We can't, but we think we can. That one, we're like, okay, I get it. But just never beginning seems to just break our concept here. And so when God spoke that, what he's saying is that I created time itself. What, what is time? No, not what time is it, but what is time that God creates? Physicists define time as the progression of events from the past to the present into the future. And so if God created time, 
that means that God is not bound by time. That, that God can go in and step in and out of timelines like Loki in the TVA or Marty McFly, right? Isn't this wild? Like, God has this power to step into eternity, into the past, into the present, like nothing. So God's eternality is not that God will just go on forever. It's that God just is. He just always is. He's the Lord over time. And because of the, this doctrine of God's eternality, it plays into God's doc, this doctrine of his self-existence and his self-reliance and his unlimited power. And this is where we get these, these three doctrines. You've probably heard this before about God's, the, the, the three omnis, um, that, you know, the omnipresent, uh, all present. God is everywhere because God is not bound by time or space. Uh, God is omniscient, so God knows everything, or that God is omnipotent or all-powerful. So these, all these three omnis are going to be like, I don't know what to do with God. <laughs> it should be overwhelming. There's this great scene from an old movie in the 90s, uh, Bruce Almighty. Uh, Jim Carrey, he's, God gave him the permission to act as God for a, a, a certain amount of time. And so he's playing God, and he's trying to answer the, the prayers of the people that are coming to him. And it's being presented in the form of email. If you remember this scene, if you see this movie... And so he's got like, he opens his email box and it says, you know, 1,500,000 blah, 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 prayers. And he goes, that seems like a bit much. <laughs> and so he just goes, yes, 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 to all the prayers. And he's, he, they, they speed it up. He goes, try to do it real fast. And he finishes and he's like, ah. Oh. And then it comes back up, it, re, you know, it reshuffles and it's like 3 million prayers. And he's like, oh, goodness. And so he just hit replies all, yes. <laughs> like, and then it, it just, it turns out disastrous, right? Like, it's like, that doesn't help people. <laughs> Everyone wins the lottery, so no one wins the lottery, right? Like, it turns out disastrous. But how is it possible for God to be all-knowing, to hear all of our prayers all over the world at the same time, to give the same amount of consideration, to weigh what, what is good for us, and to answer us accordingly? That, that, that should blow our mind, that he's able to answer three million prayers, not just with yes to all of them. Sometimes no is really needed, right? Th this, is, th this, should, this should blow our mind. So God is limitless. He's unfathomable. There's just too much we can say about God in one sermon. But all of this is really we're saying is that we are finite and God's not, that we are limited by time and space and God's not. We have a limit to our power and knowledge, but God doesn't. And so it's, it's really hard to wrap our mind around God, but we can say, well, he's not these things, he's not these things. We can't say he's something like this, he's something like this. But then what does God say about himself? He says, I am who I am, right? So he does tell us a little bit about himself. And then in verse 15, God changes his name a, a, a wee bit. He says, his name is now I am. When, which, whenever you see the word Lord, um, right? He says, I am who I am. But then he, when it says, but now tell them, the Lord sent you, in all caps. Whenever it says the word, the word Lord in all caps, it's this Hebrew word this, for Yahweh, which you've heard that name before probably. You've heard Yahweh. It's, it's that word Lord in all caps, uh, which is God's personal, covenantal, familial name for his people. In Hebrew, the word Yahweh appears as four letters instead of the full thing. It's just, it's just the, the, the consonants there. It's Y-H-W-H which is technically unpronounceable. Um, it's where we get the word Jehovah. The vowels are outed later. Um, out, but it's out of reverence for God, the Israelites saw Yahweh as just too sacred to be spoken. They wouldn't speak the name. It, and because it, it conveys something too deep for words, right? This is the reverence I think we need to recapture and the awe and the wonder. 
And yet, that name is full of something so intimate and personal, right? The God, the being itself has, has invited us into a covenantal family, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Like the God who, who is just immeasurable and unfathomable invites you to be a part of his family. Like this is wild that he deeply cares for us like that. And so who is God? What can be known about God? God is Yahweh, the scripture says. And Yahweh, as we said, oh, it means I always am. I'm self-existent. Some call this the aseity of God, right? Now, practically speaking, going, okay, that's a lot to know about God. What does that mean for you and me? Like, practically, what does that do for us? Well, if we get this, if we start to grasp this doctrine that, that God is, and everything is depending on Him, I think it's one of the most humbling and liberating things that we can know. I think it's, it's both here, because it's humbling because we're proud people, right? Like, Texans are proud. <laughs> if you're not a Texan, human beings are proud. <laughs> we, we want to work hard for everything. We, we, we're, we're Texas tough, and, and there's a pride about that. But this doctrine of Yahweh, that God is at the center of the universe, and everything depends on Him, means everything. Our work ethic is a gift. Our desires are a gift. Our talents, our abilities, everything that you have was given to you. Like, where did you get your gift to think well? Where did you get that gift that your brain is working properly? It was given to you. Can we, can we take pride in that my brain is working properly when I had nothing to do that? What about when you excel in your field? Like, how do you know that, like... Do you attribute it all to yourself, or do we say we depend on God? That's the humbling part. But the beautiful part of this doctrine is that it doesn't depend on you. And so hear me, beloved. <laughs> there is a God, and we're not it. Oh, amen? Amen. <laughs> it's not you who holds your life in your own hands. It's not you who holds the world together and the world spinning. And so there's this, there's this infamous exchange between uh, some of the reformers, Martin Luther and his friend Philip Melanchthon. And Philip was struggling with these extreme cases of anxiety and stress and worry. And very often he would be just panicking. And this is wild. For someone who was a leader in the Reformation, he would be saying, flee to the mountains. The Reformation is over. It's not going to work. You see all that self-doubt? And we're told that Luther would look at, look at Melanchthon and say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Let's do a little real-time application. Everyone turn to your neighbor, ask their name for a second. All right. Now, now that you know their name, instead of saying Philip, insert their name. So on three, we'll say this all together. One, two, three. Let Slim cease to rule the world. Hear from your neighbors. Hear from them. Worry and anxiety that we are laboring under is just this illusion. <laughs> this illusion that we're in control. 
that we have the world in our hands, that it depends on us. But Yahweh, the one who has no beginning, the one who created time itself is in control, not me. And so I can rest from being in control of everything. Like Luther defines worry as trying to rule the world, and that's just a job that you are uniquely underqualified for. Quit trying to rule the world, Slim. I mean, I feel like I have so many plates spinning in the air on these sticks, and I feel like there's this constant need to try to spin these plates, and and the one over here, when I focus over here, the one over here starts wobbling, so I, I put my emphasis over here, and then that one starts wobbling, and they all just come crumbling down. The good news is that God doesn't feel like he's spinning wobbly plates. God isn't over here trying to spin this planet because this, it was wobbling. And I got, oh, God, I forgot about earth and I got to go spin earth over here. Like the good news is that God has, is creating the earth to spin on its own. He, he, he's caring for us in that way. He, he's making sure gravity keeps us down. He is making sure comets aren't crashing into the earth. At the same time, he's making sure the sun rises. At the same time, he is making sure that his justice is being poured out like a mighty river. At the same time, he is reaching people and his kingdom is advancing. He's doing all these things at the same time. Ah, oh, it's a beautiful thing. God is incomprehensible. He's unfathomable. I mean, but, but I would say what's more unfathomable, what's even more incomprehensible, what's even more immeasurable, what's even more of an I can't even, is God's deep, deep love for you and me. That should be unfathomable. And that's actually at this very point is where God becomes truly knowable. We all deeply need to come to the end of our rope and, our, and, and blow up our box of God. Like, we need to see that there is so much more to God to wonder and to be in awe of, and the best way for us to do that is to explore who God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so if you want to know God, know the Son, And that's possible because the Holy Spirit decides to dwell in our hearts to reveal these things to you. There's all these things coming together. And what does this mean that we can't know the Father except through the Son? And I think think Jesus is saying two things here. I think one is the obvious that you don't have access to the Father without knowing the Son. But two, that knowing the Son, you can know something about the character of God. But let's talk about access first. When Jesus says this, he means until we plumb the depths of what Jesus has done for us by incarnating himself as a baby, living the perfect life we should have lived, cast out demons, identified with the outcasts of society, pushed against the darkness of this world, and then he was died, and he was buried, and he was raised again, until we can search those things and say Jesus is truly Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then we don't have access to the Father. Because sin is is cosmic treason against the king of the universe. I think we want to make sure we don't see sin as just a mistake or a poor choice against my buddy. we gotta, we got to change our thinking about that. It, it's like if I went into my wife's art studio and I just set all of her art on fire. There's no mistake in that. It's like if I went into my kids' rooms and I just stomped on all of their Legos. There's no mistake in that. It's it's what we call treason. 
It's, it's working against your own. And this is not just against anyone. This is cosmic treason against Yahweh, against the creator of heaven and earth. This is tearing at, at his fabric of his creation. It, it, it is, it is, this is what we would call, this is the sinfulness of sin. It's the ugliness of sin. And it's precisely here that we see how unworthy we are to stand in the king's court after betraying him. God is a just God who has balanced scales. He is fair. Romans tells us that the wages of sin, what we've earned because of our sin, is death. We have no access to the Father. But what is truly incomprehensible is that in spite of my sin, in spite of my betrayal, in spite of my sedition and my duplicitous, Jesus loves me anyways. That Jesus decides to love me anyways, to come and to die for me. Like, I can't even plumb the depths of God's love for me. Like, how can God be both just and compassionate? How can we have both a holy God and a compassionate God that doesn't just excuse sins? It, like, God isn't saying it's no big deal that you sinned. He doesn't just brush our sins under the rug. No, because at the cross, God becomes both just and the justifier. He does both for us. God punishes sin, but instead of punishing us, he punishes himself. He takes the sin into himself, and he dies for our sin. I will take your justice. I will take your punishment, and you go free. Now, come into the home of the king. Like, the cross doesn't brush sin under the rug. Though you may set his creation on fire... The Lord of creation of heaven and earth says, come in and eat dinner with the king. We have a place for you. We prepared a place for you. Like there's this, there's this great modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I love it. it. It says, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast, unmeasured, that he would give his only son make a wretch his treasure. Do you believe that he's making a wretch his treasure? I want to say I believe, but help my unbelief. I doubt that he sees me as his treasure. Sometimes we can only see that we're the wretch. And what we need to see is the unmeasurable, vast love of Christ for us. It makes us his treasure. He treasures you. He treasures you. We now have access to the Father. But it's not just access that Jesus is talking about here. It's also that Jesus is telling us by knowing by knowing the Son, we now know something about the Father. We know something about Yahweh. This is why Jesus says in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus doesn't just say to get to eternal life, they need to know you. He says this is eternal life. Life is knowing the true God. Life is plumbing the depths 
of this vast ocean, and it's a worthwhile journey to embark on. And seeing Yahweh, the God of our fathers, of our mothers, of our ancestors, seeing God's covenantal love committed to you, crystallized in Jesus, is a worthwhile adventure. And we see something beautiful about our God when we look into that. Yes, we see God, Yahweh is orderly. He creates time and space, that he's predictable in the sense that we can rightly expect God to keep the laws of the universe running. But what is unpredictable is just how committed he is to you and me. How committed he is to his people. God's love doesn't waver. It's committed to the least, the last, and the lost. That God seeks out the outcasts. God seeks out those who see themselves only as a wretch. He comes for you. (laughs) It's too good. And so I think the, the appropriate response to meeting Yahweh is to have a heart of wonder and awe in light of the incomprehensible greatness of our Lord. Today, I want to say this, one, blow up your box of God. See, it as, see God as bigger than you thought. It might challenge you. Two, cease to rule the world. Cease your ruling. And three, seek Yahweh out. There is eternal life there. Let me pray.